Welcome to Place Your Time Now. I'm Pam McKinnon, and this is season one, episode seven, with lighting designer and longtime collaborator of mine, Alan Lee Hughes, and the amazing Bay Area sound designer and composer, Jake Rodriguez. This conversation was recorded over Zoom on Wednesday, April 7th, 2021. ACT was partway through its reading series of great classic plays, where our MFA class of 21 were getting their union cards, and audiences got to hear the words of of Alice Childress, George Bernard Shaw, and Thornton Wilder read aloud. I am hopeful we will see more than one of these as productions on the Geary stage in coming seasons. I'm a big believer in showing and not talking so much. You know, talk and find out what you're trying to do and then do it. Hi, I'm Pam McKinnon, Artistic Director of American Conservatory Theatre, ACT, and this is Place Here, Time Now. My guests today are lighting designer Alan Lee Hughes and sound and composer Jake Rodriguez. This is going to be fun. Jake Rodriguez is a sound designer and composer based in the San Francisco Bay Area. His recent ACT credits include A Christmas Carol on Air, Top Girls, The Great Leap, Her Portmanteau, and Sweat. Other notable regional productions, Wink at Marin Theatre Company, Oedipus El Rey at the Magic Theatre, Between Two Knees at Oregon Shakes. Also Angels in America at Berkeley Rep. And The Christians at Actors Theatre of Louisville and Playwrights Horizons and the Mark Taper Forum. Jake Rodriguez is the recipient of a 2004 Princess Grace Award and we're gonna give him an honorary MFA in May. Welcome Jake Rodriguez. Good friend Alan Lee Hughes is a lighting designer. His Broadway designs include A Soldier's Play, for which he has a Tony nomination, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and Clyburn Park. I directed both of those. Having Our Say, Mulebone, Once on This Island, K2, Strange Interlude, Accidental Death of an Anarchist, and Quilters. His work has been seen at major theaters, including ACT, Arena Stage, Seattle Rep, the Goodman Theater, the Guthrie Theater, the Mark Taper Forum, the Roundabout Theater, Company, New York Theater Workshop, and Playwrights Horizons. He designed Clybourne Park and Tony Stone, among others, with me. He is proud to have been honored with four Tony nominations, an Outer Critics Circle Award, USITT Distinguished Achievement Award, Merit Award for Excellence in Design and Collaboration, and two Helen Hayes Awards. The Alan Lee Hughes Fellows Program at Arena Stage started in 1990 and clearly was named after him. Welcome, Alan. So Alan and Jake, you you worked together on Lynn Nottage's play Sweat, directed by Loretta Greco. That was the inaugural production of my moment as artistic director. Bam! That was the kickoff. That was yeah. it. Right. Um, and did you know each other beforehand? No. Nope. nope, that was our first time. You both knew the director, right? You both knew Loretta, is that? Correct. I adore lighting designers and sound designers. I sort of think of them as like, oh, these are my two collaborators who really think about time and really yeah. think about accumulation. There's something like liquid in the design. Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation with the two of you. I'm gonna start, Jake, with you. How did you come to theater? 
and why sound and why composition? At a certain point, I uh, convinced my uh, mom in particular uh, to put me in the acting classes. This is, this is at like age seven, maybe. Um, and for a good chunk of my childhood, I did the LA actor kid, failed child actor in LA kind of thing. Um, and that was like TV and movie stuff, not so much theater at all. Somewhere around my adolescence, we stopped doing that. And uh, at, coincidentally, at the same time in school, they started offering drama classes. And that kind of was my end to uh, theater at that point. And then I started doing theater in, in uh, middle school, junior high and, and high school, and then kind of stuck with theater and lost interest in doing, you know, professional acting in LA. The same time that I got involved in theater, I also started experimenting with playing music. So there was a little bit of a parallel path where I was an actor and I was doing music. At a certain point, the two sort of crossed and met in the middle. I think I, I was in New York and uh, I saw a series of city company plays with Darren West doing the sound design. Um, this was like in 97. And, and I was like, wow, I could do that. I could do like that type of sound for the plays that I act in. So uh, I, I had met in college, uh, uh, Mark Jackson, who works at ACT, and I had been working with him and I, I sent him a letter from New York and I was like, hey, the next play we work on, I wanna do the music for it, you know? So, uh, and sure enough, the next play we did, I was acting in and doing, I didn't even know what sound design was at all. <laughs> I was like making noises on tapes, you know, on cassette tapes. And uh, over a pretty short period of time, I started phasing out of acting, which I had been doing my whole life at that point. Uh, music was newer to me, so it was a newer sort of excitement. Um, and uh, I, I started to just kind of take on first just making noises for plays, and then uh, I sort of discovered what sound design was. I remember one of the first plays I did at I made the music for the play and then I just kind of handed it to the team. And I was like, well, I'm not in this play, so you don't need me around anymore, right? Like I'm done, here's the music. They're like, uh, can you be around for tech actually? It was confusing to me. Why would I need to be around for tech? I'm not in the play. Um, but so I, I, I sort of learned what sound design was <laughs> through that uh, process. And now I rarely act. I really don't do the onstage performance anymore. I still do music as a performance and I work in sound design and theater. And that's kind of how the, that, those lines have moved. And Alan, did you ever act? What was your entry point into theater? Oh, I acted a little. Uh, I, I don't even remember what grade, but at some point I played the wizard in The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I, yes. Yes, you know. Um, and uh, I don't remember acting other than that. You know, it's been so long ago, but... Um, uh, no, I got started in in theater in uh, ninth grade. A guy walked into our homeroom and pointed to the three of us and said, come with me, you're going to run follow spot. And we <laughs> protested that we didn't know anything about running follow spot. And he said, I'll teach you. And I learned to run follow spot and I uh, kind of liked it. And, uh, you know, I hate to admit it, but I became like an 
audiovisual nerd. Uh, I can say that now because I believe I've proved myself as a storyteller and uh, I'm not no longer a technical nerd uh, for sure. I depend on technicians a lot and appreciate what they do. Yeah, so then I went to high school and became co-captain of the stage crew. And a guy came to visit our school with his company. And I was asked to see if there were any technical rehearsals that they could come to, uh, that the stage crew could come to. And he said, well, we can do better than that. We may have jobs for some of you. Little did I know that jobs meant for no money, but nevertheless, I, uh, in my final years of high school, ran Lightboard for them one night a week. I went to Summerstock with that group and then went to college because of the people I met in Summerstock. I was doing this show, running Lightboard for the show at the Washington Theater Club, but now defunct theater in Washington. But the designer of that show was a resident designer at Arena Stage, and he invited me to come do overnight changeovers. And that's how I got started with Arena Stage. After college, I spent four years at Arena Stage and uh, then decided it was time to move out of Washington, leave Arena Stage, move to New York and get a master's degree if I ever wanted one. Went through NYU school and started designing and haven't looked back. <laughs> Yeah, amazing. And you and I actually first met at Arena Stage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very much as an artistic home, home for you. And there's even a fellowship named after you that really supports amazing artists coming up behind you, right? right. I mean, it's now, it's now been, you know, dozens of people. Oh, well, it's been over 700 people that are working in theaters throughout the country. So uh, that's amazing, Alan. Wow. And, what, wow. and how did that start? Okay, so uh, Zelda Fifth Chandler, the artistic director of Arena Stage, was criticized with another artistic director at a TCG conference about the lack of diversity at Arena. Now, Arena started as a theater support supportive of minorities. It was started when the National Theater, which was then the only theater in uh, Washington, this was before the Kennedy Center and the hundreds of theaters that exist now, um, but she was criticized. And Delta had this theory of philosophy, which I really appreciate, and that is criticism is the best free advice you can get. And so put it on your to-do list and, and carry on. And so she did that. She went out and got money and revamped the, not only the company, but made, tried to make the audience more diverse 
And she also started the fellowship, which was basically an internship to help minorities get the same uh, advantages that uh, others had received by starting at the bottom and working their way either up in the organization or at another theater. Let's talk a little bit about the art. So Jake, you mentioned that you were inspired by a sound designer working in in a rehearsal setting. Do you have an aesthetic? I know I have an aesthetic. I I strive to expand my horizons. I I think definitely uh, I, I love getting into a space where I'm like, not sure how I'm going to figure this out. Uh, we'll see what happens and experiment and you know fail or or succeed. In my music world, I, I have a pretty pronounced aesthetic where I come from kind of a strange out there outer space <laughs> place. Um, I don't necessarily strive to to put that into theater. I though I think I really come to a play and try and let it hit me. However, it's going to hit me. Uh, I think often as a, at least in my experience, I can't speak generally, but um, in my experience of sort of being stationed in the Bay Area and being a designer and being a sound designer in particular, um, you know, often for local plays, I get a lot of my work locally as opposed to being shipped around all over the country. I do get a fair amount chunk of my work from theaters in the Bay Area, ACT and Berkeley Rep, Cal Shakes and shotgun players. And frequently designers are coming in from out of town. And, you know, there's a limited amount of time that an out of town designer can be in town, whether because of work or just, you know, the amount it costs to house uh, somebody coming in from out of town. So I often have an advantage in that I get to sit around in rehearsal for a, a larger chunk of time than other designers who might be coming in from out of town. Also, because I come from, uh, you know, acting in theater, uh, being in rehearsal has always been a part of my process with theater. So I I get a lot of my ideas from being in the rehearsal process in the weeks leading up to going to tech. Then it's sort of a melding of the minds when all the designers come in and and get to play together. But I I get a lot of my inspiration from the actors themselves, from being in the room and from all of us like trying to create something together at the same time. Uh, It it feels feels more organic for me that way. I, I, I think it's partly because I come to sound design without any kind of real formal education or even in theater, not so much formal education. I did go to San Francisco State for a few years, but I dropped out. I've I've never been too good in an academic place. So that's just not how my learning comes. So partially it's, I, I sort of need to figure it out in real time with everybody else. I have a harder time sort of plotting forwards on paper ideas about sound it's it's that's it's a tough thing you know to sort of like uh, uh, plot that stuff out I can plot out at like a sound system but not necessarily the ideas that I'm coming up with whether it's music if I'm composing or if I'm if I'm you know just kind of trying to you know support the sound environment that the play needs in order to tell the story I, I get a lot of that um, just from being in the room with the director and maybe the writer and the, the actors and uh, figuring that stuff out. And then it's like a whole new gameplay when the other designers are in the room 
maybe a little bit before we go into tech and then in throughout the whole tech process. We did a Christmas Carol this last year as a radio play, largely right. due to COVID, but also the ACT traditionally does the Bay Area Christmas Carol. We wanted to keep that tradition alive. And you were such an important part. And director Peter Quo told me that actually the first cut or first edit of the on-air Christmas Carol was literally, he felt too scary because <laughs> of some of the sound cues. Yeah. But he felt, okay, we've got it. We've got to go through this. We've got it. Like it's too, <laughs> like this Christmas Carol's too scary. Scrooge started back appalled. <gasps> Spirit of the Yorkson. They are man's. This boy is ignorance. This girl is want. Beware them both and all of their degree, but most of all, beware this boy, for on his brow is written doom. <laughs> well, I, I, here, my little secret is that it's really easy for me to be too scary <laughs> and too spooky. And in fact, I'm constantly told, I mean, Loretta Greco, who I love and I work with all the time, you know, I, her first take on on some stuff I give her usually is like maybe a little bit less uh, in the suicidal realm or you know I mean it's you know or a little too spooky I get a little too spooky quite a bit so I, I, I expected I might overreach and then I would get reined in in fact that's generally how I go part of my process is maybe I put a little too much out there or not enough and you know then need to get either reined in or encouraged to go further in that direction. I built this instrument for this Christmas carol for the radio that I call Marley, that is just like this wood board with all these different pieces of metal and different things I can bow and strike. Um, uh, because I knew I'd be creating a lot of new sound design for this radio play version. And I originally did the, the stage production of this of this ad adaptation of Christmas Carol 15 years ago or so. Um, and we've added a little here and there, but a lot of that stuff is from 15 years ago. You know, me sitting in a room and screaming into a mic for the giant bird creature and stuff. And, you know, we didn't have a bird creature for this radio play. So we didn't have a giant bird puppet that we usually rely on for the big Christmas future moment. Um, so I had to sort of create a whole new way of, of evoking um, that kind of feeling. But yeah, uh, too scary, not a problem for me. <laughs> not at all. Alan, I always feel that I lean on you kind of in those moments where I've been in the weeds and then you enter the room and you ask the big question. <laughs> you know, you, you ask like, why is this happening? Right. What does that mean? It's sort of a basic question. And I always mean that as like the, a fundamental question. I, I quoted you the other day. I said, one director always says, Alan asks the questions that nobody, everybody's thinking, but nobody wants to ask. That's it. But they, I said, you know, I'll be the dummy. Why, why are we doing this, you know, this way, you know? Um, yeah. And I so value it because around the corner, if we're doing our job, let's say at the Geary Theater, 
a thousand dummies are about to watch this story, uh, right? Exactly, uh, you know, a thousand exactly. people who don't know, who don't know the day-to-day -day struggle and, and, and what we've all been talking about. So you're the person who says, I'm going to ask it before the audience comes in. Right. What is this about? So, you know, I love your description of liquid designer, design and designers. And I really feel that's appropriate. You know, we are the last people before the audience, you know, with the actors, we in tech, you know, put it all together. And uh, it's really an exciting part of the process. And, you know, I love that. You know, and some of it is, you know, you can you can have design moments that are very forward, very noticeable. And then other times, you know, both lights and sound, they can be more felt than heard or seen. Right. And Alan, you and I have worked on both kinds of plays. Right. You're bringing up a little bit of light right before an actor's about to cross over there. And right. hopefully, uh, you know, unless a light switch goes on, nobody in the audience is any wiser. Right. And then we've also worked on plays like most recently, Tony Stone, um, where there are moments where like, it's your job to create like a new space. Exactly. Then one of my friends said, on Facebook that you've seen Alan in mostly subtle plays. And this is a time that he gets his pop and sizzle. <laughs> so, about Tony Stone? You about mean? Tony Stone, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, so, no, big pop yeah. and sizzle, absolutely. You know, in a very, you know, quote unquote, simple set, um, or at least, you know, a sort of a surround, a container for the story, and it was all on you. I often think of uh, you as the director, the genius that you are. It was written that we started to play in a spotlight. So I dutifully, you know, had a spotlight there. And, you know, we decided that that wasn't the way to start the play at all. Hmm. And, and we totally changed it. And, you know, we did it immediately so you could see it. I'm a big believer in showing and not talking so much. Hmm. You know, talk and find out what you're trying to do and then do it, you know, so the director can see it and, and decide. Congratulations, Alan, on your Tony nomination. Is this nomination number four? Is that is that right? That is actually correct. That is actually and, uh, correct. Yay. And, uh, and as you may or may not know, I'm one of the few people that's had the nomination for the longest period of time uh, because of COVID shutdown. Uh, Normally it's about a month, I think, that you're nominated. And uh, I've had uh, maybe close to a year. One of the things I'm proud of is it's not just about the lighting, I feel, on my shows. For example, on Clybourne Park, you won an award for that, right? I won an Obie Award, and you were and you were my date. You were my date at the Obies. We sat side by side. Right, and didn't you win a Tony? 
Um, I was nominated for a Tony Award okay. um, for Clybourne Park, and then I won a Tony Award the next season, also because I worked with you on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Okay, yeah. so it was Virginia Woolf that it was won Virginia Woolf. Tony. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah, but my back-to-back -back Broadway shows were lit by Alan Lee Hughes and got nominated on both of them and won and won the second go-round. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you two are deep together. We're pretty deep together. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. And it's funny that uh, I was forced upon her in that uh, at, a re at, at, at arena, a yeah. Stage, you know, which is how I got got a lot of shows. You know, work started working with directors. There was a time at arena stage that I did a number of shows and. And directors didn't have a choice about who they worked with. And they worked with me once and liked working with me. And so that that always felt good. It as it does feeling, it feels good to go be invited back to a theater. Frequently, the very top of the play is a little bit of language. And I'm gonna ask the two of you, after I read a playwright's version of Place Your Time Now, to describe your place and time that could be physical, because this is a podcast, so people wanna know where you are, or it could also be an emotional state. Here we are, you know, hopefully a little more hopeful coming through COVID, we can maybe see the light at the end of the tunnel, I'm not going to impose that on you, but I'm just sort of saying. Okay, so here's 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 a place here time now by Bruce Norris in Cl for Clybourne Park. Right. The set is the interior of a modest three-bedroom bungalow, 406 Clybourne Street, in the near northwest of central Chicago. There is a sitting room with front door access, a fireplace with an oak mantelpiece, a separate dining area with built-in cupboards. At the rear of the dining area, a swinging door leads to a kitchen. A staircase leads up to the second floor and beneath it, another door leads down to a basement. There is a hallway and a bathroom door as well. Act one, September, 1959, three o'clock, Saturday afternoon. Lights. <laughs> okay. So that's Clybourne Park's place here time now. I wonder, Jake. The setting is Richmond, California. I'm in my house, uh, having just returned from a little mini vacation uh, about an hour ago. Um, we, we, my family drove up to um, Guerneville, the Russian River, and we were there for a couple of days. It's the first time I've been anywhere uh, in the past year. And, uh, it was a very successful vacation. So I'm in the sort of afterglow of my first time away uh, uh, in the past year. And uh, playing in the background is my brand new tape, which happened to arrive in the mail um, uh, while I was away on vacation. So I came home to a box full of tapes of my new tape um, and I was listening to it and it sounded really good. And I was really happy about how it came out. Um, the room is lit just from the natural sunlight through the blinds, and it's afternoon. Alan, 
place here, time now. So I am in my apartment in New York, which is one bedroom, and I'm happy to be able to afford to live alone at my age. And I have three large windows or three normal size windows that are together with blinds over them. And the blinds are shut so that you can see me on Zoom. <laughs> I have a desk light that's shining on my face as well as a ring light and the kitchen light that's coming from my left. And I am an old guy now, <laughs> and I'm a teacher. And I, so my hope and future lives in not my designs, but the designs and success of my students. I do still work. But I do put my faith in my students to, you know, be my legacy. So um, that's where I am. That's great. I love that both of you really centered around sound for one and lights for the other. That felt right. That's amazing. That's amazing. Is there anything else we should talk about? Yeah, what's going on with Tony Stone? Do you right, know? well, exactly. No, 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 no. So, so, so next stop, Tony Stone, Arena Stage. Molly wants it to kick off their season. It's all about oh, okay. health and safety. And, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure dates, are, dates are coming. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, Ooh. we're going to get the gang back together and put it up there. Right. You're, not, you're, not, you're not done with me yet. There's a Tony Stone street now in, in yes, San Francisco, right? Yeah. Yes, and right? That. right. You yes. know, it's it's now out there. Milwaukee, Atlanta, Chicago's cool. like, I think the Goodman's going to do it. Cool. Um, it'll be That's a big awesome. play. Right. So that was my conversation with Alan Lee Hughes and Jake Rodriguez. This has been Place Here, Time Now. Please check out our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Bye for now. Bye.